I'm going to be in the book of First Peter, New Testament, second chapter. We've been in this passage now uh, for a while because we've been in First Peter, but we've been in it the past uh, couple of weeks. And then on Sunday, Palm Sunday, just a few, just earlier this week, we looked at the first part of the passage I'm going to read. We summed up the life of Christ, and tonight we're going to sum up the death of Christ. So this is First Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. If you will, please stand with me in honor of God's Word. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is God's word. You may be seated. As I said on Sunday, Palm Sunday, we summed up the life of Christ in a single word that we got from verse 23 of the text we just read. The word is entrusted. Jesus continued to entrust his life to God who judges justly, meaning his body and his soul his time, the events of his life, his purpose, his pursuits, even his followers, he entrusted everything to God. He did so for the purpose of obedience. That's why Jesus gave his life over, committed it up to God. It was for the purpose of obedience. It wasn't for the purpose of being kept safe or for having pleasure in this life or for being successful. He gave his life over, he entrusted his life over for the purpose of being obedient all the way to the cross. How we thank God for the entrusted life of Christ. Now today, tonight, we come to verse 24. The death on the cross that Christ's entrusted, that Christ's entrusted life led to was for us. There... Christ bore our sins. So if we were to sum up the death of Christ, we would say it is substitutionary. Sunday we meditated on the entrusted life of Christ. Now we want to meditate on the substitutionary death of Christ. The first thing we see and want to say about Jesus Christ and his death is that he fulfilled the prophecy we heard from Isaiah when we began this service, Isaiah 53, the prophecy of a suffering servant who is also the Messiah. When we think of Messiah, we think of royalty and glory and exaltation. Isaiah says, yes, but not first. First, he is the suffering servant who bears the sins of many and makes them righteous and reconciles to God. 
This whole passage that we've read has numerous references to Isaiah 53, which is one of the most important Old Testament prophecies concerning two things, the coming of the suffering servant, the Messiah, who would suffer for his people, but also the way the servant would save his people. Isaiah 53 is telling us that the way the suffering servant saves his people is by substitution. He bore our sins. He bore the punishment of our sins. He bore the wrath of God against our sins. And by doing so, he makes us free from the punishment of sin. He grants us forgiveness of sin. He gives us right standing with God. So yes, the gospel, the good news, is even in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 being the prime example. This passage in 1 Peter and others in the New Testament all point to one man, the man, Jesus Christ. And we want to meditate on just one verse, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness By his wounds, you have been healed. A meditation is a slow turning of words and phrases individually in our minds, considering them, pondering them, trying to understand the meaning. And then the meditation goes on to putting it all back together into a a truth, a reality. And that meditation upon the scripture and the truth and the reality then has impact. It has its way with us. It leads us somewhere. It does something to us. We could say we do something with it, but it does something to us. And so we want to consider, meditate on the substitutionary death of Christ. Word and phrase at a time. He. Who is he? He's Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53, he's the man of prophecy, the man of sorrow. He's the man of history. Isaiah 7, born of a virgin. Back to Isaiah 53, he's the man of sorrow. Who is he? Jesus Christ, the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Jesus had more sorrow and more grief than any other human had ever experienced because Jesus knew more. Sometimes the more you know, the more grievous things are. Jesus knew more than everyone because Jesus is eternal. Jesus Christ is God the Son and He is eternal. And so He knew the eternal fellowship with the Father and the Spirit because He's the Son, one God, three persons. Jesus knew the very beginning. He knew the fellowship that Adam and Eve had with God before sin entered the world and before the world was cursed and before their fellowship was broken. So Jesus knew how far he had come to become a man and he knew how far they fell because of their sin. And this juxtaposition between heaven and earth and fellowship and suffering made Jesus, the man of history, a man of deep sorrow and grief. 
And yet he was also a chosen man. He was chosen of God to be the suffering servant to do something about sin and sorrow. That's who he is. But the text says he himself did something. What is necessary to do to reconcile God and man, he, Jesus, being the God-man, did himself. Jesus did not reconcile us to God and to himself through us. He did not help us do it. Jesus didn't do it with us. Jesus did it himself. He did what we cannot do and could not do. Now, human relations work differently. We have phrases for the way we work as humans. Here's one. You made your bed, now lie in it. The one who does the crime serves the time. I'll help you so that you can help yourself. Now, these ways of thinking have their place in human relationships. There's legitimacy to every one of those statements. Because we are not each other's savior. They just don't apply to being reconciled to God. None of those statements applies to the reconciliation of God and sinful people. In things pertaining to Christ, in things pertaining to salvation, in things pertaining to a human being being reconciled to God, Christ does that himself. And not grudgingly, as we do. Move over, I'll do it myself. He does it willingly. He's chosen for this. Now, this is hard for us to accept. Because to have Christ himself do for us puts us in this totally humbled, helpless state where all we can do is acknowledge that he did it and receive it. We have no contribution to this. Not one bit. Jesus did it himself. So we're stripped bare of all hope in self. That's where we actually are. We, we're stripped bare. We are completely naked without any self-righteousness, without any covering, without any contribution, nothing. He himself. And what did he do? Bore our sins. Isaiah 53, again. Our griefs, our sorrows, our sins, our iniquity, the chastisement that those sins deserve and which also brought us peace, he bore it all. He bore our sins. Human mistakes, 
and human weaknesses are real, but they are not the sins that he bore. Christ's grace is sufficient for our mistakes and for our weaknesses, but the best news of all is that he bore our sins. If we don't go deeper than human weakness, then all we will have in Christ is a helper. But Christ is more than a helper. Christ is a rescuer. Christ is a redeemer. Christ ransoms us. Christ is a savior. He bore our sins. If all he bore was our weaknesses, then a little propping up will get us along. If he just bore our mistakes, then some correction and a little more education would get us along. But he bore our sins. He himself bore our sins. This is what meditation does. It causes you to slow down and look at every single word. He bore our sins, meaning not his own. Verse 22, backing up just a bit, says, He didn't have any sin. There was no deceit in him. So with no sin and no deceit yet on a cross, The only explanation that makes any sense biblically and experientially is that Christ died in our place as our substitute. Isaiah 53 again. The Lord God laid on him, Christ, the iniquity of us all. The chastisement that brought us peace was put on him. He bore the sins of many. He bore our sins, not his. He bore our sins in his body. Now, Peter and all of the New Testament writers and really the Old Testament writers, Isaiah, make the point that it was in his body There is a necessity of a body to bear sins. Why? To show us that the suffering was a total suffering. It was the suffering of body and soul. It was physical and it was spiritual. If he somehow could have lifted himself out of his body and floated around and then we could say there's some kind of symbolic suffering going on. No. It's the will of the Father to locate to locate the sacrifice, the substitute, substitutionary sacrifice for our sins in a body, in a place, physical where justice and mercy meet together in a body where where God has poured out his just retribution against human sin as the judge who judges justly and yet at the same time shows mercy to those sinners by doing it in the body of his son. 
A body is necessary to locate it there. A body is necessary to show that the sacrifice is actual and not just symbolic. A body is necessary to save the bodies of sinners as well as our souls, which will be manifest in the resurrection when we who are in Christ will be raised up with new bodies. A body is necessary to honor God, Christ honoring God with his body, to call us to honor God and serve Christ with our bodies in this life while we wait his return but live now. A body is necessary to remind us of the humanness of Jesus in that he resisted temptation in his body. The same temptations that we have in our bodies. He resisted them and therefore knows how to sympathize with us as we experience these same temptations. He bore our sins in his body on a tree. Two things, two reasons I believe Peter used the phrase tree. One, he wanted to show us that it was on a cross made of wood. So it's a physical experience, a crucifixion, a physical death where as a tree between heaven and earth hangs, so the cross between heaven and earth is a physical location. But I think also Peter uses the word tree because the word tree in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy and again in the New Testament in Galatians reminds us that the one who hangs on a tree bears the curse of God. So Jesus in his body died on a tree physically on a cross but also had a spiritual experience of being under the curse of God. It's a psychological and spiritual pain that he is suffering as well. Christ could have died. He could have been executed in other ways. And we can't even say that the, that the primary suffering of Jesus was in his physical death, the physical pain that he felt. God chose this way. God chose this way through the agency of evil human beings. God still chose this way, the way of a tree, for a reason. To show that his death, that in his death he bore the curse of sin. The curse of it. The condemnation of it before God. This is what makes the death of Jesus unique. Three people were crucified that day. Jesus and two people, on one on each side, two men. Jesus was unique. They all died a physical death. Only Jesus bore the curse. And that's why he is unique. The curse born is the curse removed. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. That. He bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 
Now, there's another word along with substitution that I want to introduce you to. You've heard it before, but maybe you've never heard it. Here it is again. Imputation. Imputation means, it, it, the, the word is impute. It means that God considers what Christ accomplished to be ours. It means that God counts it as ours. It's mind-boggling. You say, it can't be. It's impossible. Christ did it. How is it mine? Because God decides it's yours. Because he counts it as yours. And thereby making it a reality for us. Now, first, there's a different kind of imputation. God counted our sins to be Christ's. This is the gospel. This is in the Bible. God counted our sins to be Christ. He imputed them to Christ. Christ didn't sin. But the guilt and the condemnation and the curse and the wrath against our sin, he poured it out on his son because he imputed our sins to his son. And then God imputes Christ's death and righteousness to us. He counts it as ours. The death of Christ being ours means this. When Christ died on the cross, if we are the people of Christ, if we are of faith in Christ, if we are in Christ, then as Christ died on the cross, we also died. We died with him to sin. We are dead to sin. To be dead means to be separated from it. We are separated from the curse of sin, even though it's our sin, because Christ's death for our sin is imputed to us. We are separated from the power of sin over us. The Spirit is breaking the power of sin in our lives progressively, and He will break it finally and fully when we see Christ. We will be saved to sin no more. And the righteousness of Christ is ours. And that means that as Christ has right standing before God because he is the Son of God, God counts his right standing as ours. And when we have faith in Christ because he died for us and was raised for us, we can stand before God righteous. You say, but I'm not righteous. To which we say, you're right, you're not. But his righteousness is counted as yours credited to you, to you, and you stand free. Look what Christ has done for us. We're almost ready to put it all back together. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. But there's one more phrase. By his wounds we are healed. We're healed. It means whole. It means at peace. It means that that obstacle, that great barrier of sin has been removed. It means that necessity of having a positive righteousness to be counted as ours to stand before a holy God has been granted. It means that God and sinners have been reconciled through Christ. And it's a spiritual healing of a soul. 
And yes, it will result in a physical healing of the body at the return of Christ in the new heaven and the new earth when we'll be raised in new bodies. But that's Sunday. I got to wait. It means a spiritual healing of reconciliation to God. By His wounds, we are healed. There's the substitutionary nature of it. We sum up the death of Christ in that word. Substitution. So what do we do with this good news? Well, there's nothing you can do to make it good news. We already said He did it. But there is a calling. There is a response. Believe this. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Will you receive this? It'll take, an, it, 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 there is an inward thing going on inside of the person who believes and receives this. You, you fall down before the cross and you say, I have nothing. Christ, you did it all. And I receive this. And then we live this. We call that, we call the believing and receiving salvation, we call the living it sanctification. We, we live this. We take up the cross and we say, I'm going to follow after my Savior Christ. And then we proclaim this. We say this message in this congregation, this is the message in this congregation. It is the central message of the gospel. It's the message of God for all of history and eternity. And it is the central message of this congregation. And you and I together as, as members of this church say, this is where we will put our hope. And this is what we will proclaim, come what may. And we worship. We fall at the foot of the cross and we worship. There's no greater activity that a human being can do on this planet than to worship our Savior at the foot of the cross. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Help us to believe. Call out tonight, faith. Help us to follow, help us to proclaim, help us, Father, to worship, amen.